Welcome to the Lincoln Road Chapel Podcast. We're a church here in Waterloo that exists to become a thriving community of Christ followers. Our mission is to love God, make disciples, and serve our neighborhood, city, and the world. We meet every Sunday morning at 10 a.m., and we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about Sunday morning worship, our ministries, or how to connect in community, visit our website at lrc.church. Uh, uh, welcome to you. If uh, you've come in since uh, announcements, again, my name is Reg Lewicki, lead pastor here at the church. Good to be with you here in person. Good to be with you, uh, those who have joined us online, uh, however you are joining us uh, this morning. And uh, I'm going to begin kind of with a question here. And my question is, um, have you ever been invited somewhere where you kind of knew right away that you didn't belong? And I, and I don't mean like this is like if someone finds out I'm going to get in trouble, but sort of like you just understand this is not my venue, these are not my people, I, I'm, you know, I feel like this is, I'm out of my depths here. You know kind of what I mean? And, and, and if you were to accept the invitation, you know that with it, it comes with this idea that you're going to have to adhere to a particular kind of set of expectations to kind of fit in with everybody else. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. For, for me, I remember the very, very first time that I ever went to a kind of upscale, fancy restaurant. I was 43. Um, just kidding, just kidding. It wasn't that bad. I was nine. I was about nine. And uh, my dad had just gotten a promotion at work. And um, I don't know what my parents were thinking, which is really the preface for any story I tell about my, my childhood. But I don't know what they were thinking. If they were thinking, this is the kind of thing we should celebrate as a family, or if they just couldn't find a babysitter, that's always in play. But whatever the circumstances were, my sister and I, we were invited to come and be a part of this. And I remember that my mom sat me down and had a very pointed conversation with me. I think she probably talked to my sister as well, but she probably had to have the conversation with me like two or three times to make sure that it kind of sunk in. But, but she told me a couple of things. She said, look, you're being invited to this restaurant not because of who you are or what you've done. We're going because of something that your father has accomplished. And so to some degree, this whole invitation was simply being extended as an act of grace. But we were also told that there would be expectations should we accept this invitation and how we would act. And so, for example, I had to get dressed up. And this meant for sure I was going to have to go find my skinny leather zip-up tie because it was the 80s and had to make myself look real good. Uh, I was told that, um, you know, under no circumstances was I to misbehave. There'd be no goofing off, no fighting with my sister, no making loud noises, that sort of thing. Please and thank you was not optional. And then my mom broke the news to me. She said, I had to prepare myself because I would not be able to order a cheeseburger off the menu, which is and continues to be my custom. And so I was like, well, what am I going to do now? And so this is a side note. This is the first time I ever had shrimp cocktail. And it came in like this big, giant glass chalice, and these jumbo shrimp were hanging over the side and sauce in the middle. And I was like, this is amazing, but it's not a cheeseburger. (laughs) Anyway. It was grace that I was being invited into this experience. But accepting that invitation meant that I had to align my behavior with the expectations of the place I was being invited into. There are implications on my appearance and upon my behavior and upon my decision-making. Now, this is not a perfect metaphor, but I think it can be a helpful picture, especially in connection to the psalm that we're looking at today. And so here's the thing. If you were like me, and you grew up as a good evangelical Christian, at some point when you hear somebody start talking about what you have to do, you maybe have this reaction, right? You get, oh, no, 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 whoa, whoa, no, 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 it's grace through faith, right? And I agree with that 100%. It's not our own works. 
But that does not negate the fact that when you accept the gift of salvation, it invites you into a new way to live. There's a responsibility. There is an expectation that we would live in an appropriate way in light of what has been done for us. Dallas Willard rightly reminds us that effort is different than earning. Put that in your head. Effort is different than earning. We do nothing on our own to to gain God's favor or love. It's his grace that does save us. But when we receive us, when we receive it, there is work for us to do. We partner with his spirit to be conformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus as we lean into what it means to be truly human as one of God's chosen people. So we're just going to kind of stick that in the back of my hope. No one's gotten up and run away. So uh, we're going to keep that in the back of our mind, and we're going to turn in our Bibles, uh, or if you have a device, you can turn to Psalm 15. That is our psalm today as we continue this teaching series, Psalms for the Summer. And um, Psalm 15, we're told, is a psalm of David. Now, we're not specifically told in this psalm what part of David's life uh, this was written in, but to me, it seems likely that he is king at this point just because of the way that he is thinking about um, the religious part of the life of Israel, and uh, we're going to see that in the text this morning. So this is Psalm 15, and it says this, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? The one whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart and has no slander on their tongue, who does their neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on their fellow man, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps their oath even when it hurts, who lends their money without usury, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. The one who does these things will never be shaken." As we move to the psalm today, I note the structure of the poem today. The poem begins with a question, and then there is most of the psalm is the response to that question, and then at the very end, kind of tagged on the, uh, the back end, is a promise. And so we're going to walk through each of these three sections this morning. And so the psalm opens up with a question, and you remember we talked about this a few weeks ago. If in your Bible you see that Lord is all capitalized, we are talking about the divine name of God, right? This is personal, intimate uh, way to refer to God. And so the psalm opens up with this question, and it says, Yahweh, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? Now, as you look at that word sanctuary, the word that we translate sanctuary is the Hebrew word ohel, and it means literally, it means tent. That's what we're talking about. And so I think there's two ideas that are being presented out of the text this morning that, that, are, that kind of work in conjunction with each other. First, and this becomes apparent as it talks about going up the holy hill, think about the temple mount, um, there's a reference here, I think, to the tabernacle which was the literal tent that Israel used prior to Solomon building uh, the temple to God, right? This was, uh, in a sense, the portable uh, center of worship that Israel used. From the time that they left uh, Egypt and were in the wilderness until the time that Solomon built the temple, this was the manner by which they uh, met with God and they worshiped God and they participated in all of their religious activities, Now, in the ancient Near Eastern world, for a worshiper, it was normal for for a worshiper to inquire about the conditions necessary to enter into a sanctuary or into a place of worship. And often, these things included a set of rituals, some kind of practice, some sort of ceremonial cleansings, and then you'd be kind of allowed to enter into this sacred space. And so, um, you know, this was the same uh, for Israel's priests as they would go in and, and do their priestly duties. 
But I think here, David, as he writes, he's digging even deeper than this. He's moving beyond ceremony and beyond ritual, and he wants to identify character of a person. What kind of person is being invited to draw near to God? But then the second idea that exists within uh, the use of this idea of ohel or tent uh, is, is the language around dwelling. And dwelling is a word that can mean to sojourn. And sojourning means to be invited to live for a time among someone. Think about a landowner who says, you may come and kind of camp in my backyard for a little while if you want to. And so a good picture for us, if you know the story of, of Jacob and Joseph. So, so Joseph goes into Egypt and he uh, you know, helps them out during a difficult time. And then you have Jacob and the rest of his sons and their wives and their kids. They come and because of what Joseph has done, Pharaoh says to Jacob, you may uh, live in a part of our land, right? You're allowed to come and live among the Egyptian people. And so the picture that's being evoked here is really one of God's hospitality, that God is extending hospitality towards people. Who is it, Yahweh, that you extend your hospitality to? Who is it that you invite to come near, to be in relationship with you, to be near to you, to worship you? And so like our opening illustration, what we're seeing here is God is inviting people to come and be among him as his people, but there's also an understanding that if you were to receive the invitation, it means agreeing to live in a particular way according to particular standards or expectations. You see this happening elsewhere in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 33, we already heard uh, today, I, uh, Psalm 24 was read for us, right? The idea of who may ascend the hill of the Lord, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. When you read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthews chapter 5, 6, and 7, this is precisely what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is available to all people. It's available to the weak and to the poor and to the vulnerable and to the broken and to the weary and the lost. The grace of God invites everyone in, but the life of that kingdom, well, it's meant to be lived in a particular way. And so verses 2 through 5 uh, begins a framework for us, a description of what it might look like and what kind of person is the guest of God. And notice that this is not necessarily a list of tasks. This is not a, a to-do list. This is all about somebody's character. This is about who somebody is more than what somebody does. And so David, in verse 2, sums it all up with sort of these three major headings. He says, the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, and who speaks truth from their heart. Blameless here is the word tamim, and it means to be whole or, or sound in nature. We might use the, the term wholeheartedness, right? Completeness. Uh, people who are righteous. We've talked about righteousness over the last couple of weeks because it shows up again and again in the Psalms, and so that's the word sedek. And to be righteous means to be in right relationship with everyone. That means I'm in right relationship with myself. I'm in right relationship with you, my neighbors, and I'm in right relationship with God himself. And then we're to be people who speak truth from one's heart. That what comes from your very core from the essence of who you are, is true. And so the one that's invited to sojourn with God is the one whose life is wholehearted, whose actions and relationships are right, and whose motivations are true. 
This is a picture of integrity and commitment to what is right and good and true, not a fragmented or a compartmentalized life where one has a, a persona within their Christian community and then a different persona in their workplace community and maybe a different persona in their social spaces. That we would identify that the way that God defines what is right and wrong and what is good and evil, what it looks like to live as his people, that it's fully integrated into who we are. Every part of us, our decision-making, our actions, our behaviors, our relationships. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, what do we hear Jesus say? Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. See, there's no facade. There's no play-acting. This is the motivation of one's entire being. Now, this is a a broad and a sweeping statement that David is making here. So he begins to to lay out these specific examples of how this might get worked out in somebody's life. What are sort of concrete examples? That being blameless and righteous and true is so much more than just simply being a state of your mind. But it actually has to get lived out in some way in the world around you. And again, back to the Sermon on the Mount, you hear Jesus say something about trees and fruit. Right? He says, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. And this is exactly what's happening as David's working out here. He's saying, um, what, is the, what is the kind of fruit that is consistent with living righteously? And maybe what is the kind of fruit that might not be consistent with living righteously? And so David says at the beginning that the fruit of one's life can be seen in how you speak. The righteous and the wholehearted, he says, has no slander on their tongue, who does their neighbor no wrong, and casts no slur on their fellow man. A blameless character gets lived out in how someone speaks about people, but also how one speaks to people. James, the brother of Jesus, reminds us of the power of the tongue. He talks about, uh, it's like a rudder, right? You have a big ship and you have this little piece of wood and this little rudder is able to direct a ship and the path that it takes. So is our tongue. It directs our life. James likewise likens the tongue to a fire whose um, sparks can set whole forests ablaze. We've experienced that in our country this year, haven't we? You know, we've, we've smelt it and seen it, the, the devastation that began somewhere small. And so James is telling us we must be careful in how we speak. He says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men, and we've been made, who have been made in God's likeness. And out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives, or, or a grapevine bear figs? Well, neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. In the same manner, Paul implores uh, the church in Ephesus to avoid foolish talk and and coarse joking. He says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. See, the person who dwells among God is to be a person who avoids gossip, a person who does not take pleasure in the idle talk about other people. To be people who refrain from speaking ill about people in order to make them look bad or to slander their character. That we wouldn't be people who participate in the rumor mill to keep us from using our words as a weapon in order to tear down or humiliate. 
We live in a society that craves this kind of thing. A, a quick trip to Twitter, or as I found out today, they've changed it to X on my app, uh, shows us that we have this tendency where right? we show very little restraint when it comes to criticizing people, right? We want to cast aspersions on others. We're eager for people to trip up and fall so that we can join in, right? We want to be the, the jury of popular opinion, to be able to say what's what and to write people off and to, to give our own opinion mocking or piling on with labels. But you see, for those who belong to God, for those who have been saved by Christ Jesus, there is an expectation around how we would use our words. The words would be thoughtful or used for illuminating truth or for building others up. That we'd be characterized as those who encourage or who speak words of comfort or of grace. And so a question we should be asking ourselves is how do I use my words, whether they're written or they're spoken? Do my words bring life or do they leave a trail of wreckage behind them? Would others characterize me as being a kind person or do they see me as being mean and critical? Do I have a reputation for gossip, for lying? How eager am I to add my two cents regarding somebody else's pain or difficulty or failure, you just have to understand that how you speak reveals something about who you are. David continues uh, in verse 4, he says that the blameless and the righteous one despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord. This is all about uh, somebody's allegiance. This isn't about holding hatred in your heart for another person, but this is rather being somebody who rejects the thing that is evil. To despise is to disregard evil, is to say that it has no place with me, that I won't allow it, allow it to influence me, I won't entertain it, I, I want to keep it far from me. And then on the flip side, to say that the righteous will honor and receive all those things that are in line with who God is according to his life and his wisdom. And so this is not about ostracizing or cutting people off or, or only associating with people who line up with what we think are our values. You see, we live in a world that's characterized on one side by cancel culture or on the other side by echo chambers. And so we'll feel that pull to go in either direction, right? But this is not that. See, this is about our character. This is about what am I allowing to influence me? We're not people who get caught up in the crowd, who get swept along with whatever is happening, but people who have a sense of what is right and what is wrong and is in line with what God says. That when we're confronted with evil, we refuse to compromise our values. We reject it. We don't give it a place in our lives. And so a question that we could ask ourselves again is who or what am I allowing to influence me? What influences my thinking or my, my worldview or my decision-making? Do I even have a clear idea of what God says is right or wrong? And am I committed to it? Or, or do I feel myself saying, well, I wish it was this, or I feel a pull in this direction, maybe I will go that way? Am I committed to upholding uh, God's will and God's purpose in every part of my life? David continues, he says, The blameless guest of God is the one who keeps their oath even when it hurts who lends their money without usury and who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. This again is in keeping with the idea of being people who are honest, 
people who have integrity. See, the person of God is a person who does what they say they're going to do. They're people who keep their word. Jesus, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, he sums it up this way. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That people can take you at your word. They know when you say something that they can trust you, that you'll do what you say. And so how trustworthy are you? Maybe not in your own eyes, but in the eyes of other people. How trustworthy do they perceive you to be? Are you characterized as being somebody who does what you say you'll do? Or are you someone who says the thing that needs to be said in order to get what you want or to get out of something? The middle part of these verses is, a part, is about being a person who is generous, not someone who takes advantage of others in their misfortune. The person is described as lending their money without usury, and that means unreasonably high rates of interest. So I know that's a sore spot for us in our current economic climate, right? But in Leviticus, it was made clear that the people of God were to make a priority of caring for the vulnerable. Leviticus says this, if one of your countrymen becomes poor and is unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would help an alien or a temporary resident so they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest of any kind from them, but fear your God so that your countrymen may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. When lions um, attack a herd of zebra, uh, they zero in on the weaker, more vulnerable ones. Why? You don't have to answer that. It's obvious, isn't it? Because they're an easy target. They're easy prey. And the thing is, humans, we have this tendency too, don't we? That we look for those that we might take advantage of for our own benefit. The righteous people, the people who belong to Jesus are people of mercy, they're not to behave in this manner. They do not use the misfortunes of the weak, holding them down in order to gain for oneself. Rather, the people of God are to be generous. They're to actually give of themselves in order to help and to benefit those who are in need, even when it's costly. Because this is precisely who God has been to us. This is who God had been to Israel. This is what he says. Leviticus states on behalf of God, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And brought you into Canaan. When you had nothing, I came alongside of you. I helped you get back on your feet. I provided for you in your need. And then finally, in that same vein, the righteous ones will refuse to take bribes against the innocent. You see, mercy and justice are inseparable in the economy of God. There is to be no bias towards the rich or the powerful at the expense of the poor or the weak, because God is a God of justice. God is the one who upholds that which is truly right. And so dealings are to be honest and transparent, and the people of God are to be people who cannot be purchased by those who are powerful. They cannot be manipulated uh, by power as a means to help others off the hook for oppressing or taking advantage of others. And so who is it that can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who is it that can dwell in his tent? Well, God's people are to be blameless and to be righteous and to be true. People who guard their tongues and use their words for building up and not tearing down. People whose wholehearted allegiance is to the things of God and not to the things of the world, that they be careful not to be influenced by evil. 
that there'd be people of integrity who always do what they say, who are generous in their care for the weak and the poor and the vulnerable, those who uphold justice by refusing to be bought or manipulated by power. And for those who are characterized in this way, who find themselves dwelling among God, this is the promise that is given to them. The one who does these things will never be shaken. You see, there's security to be found in living as God's people. That if you would sojourn and dwell in his tent is to come under his care and under his provision. You receive his invitation. You accept his hospitality. It means that he makes himself responsible for your long-term well-being. Come, God, Yahweh says, come and live as my people. And I will care for you and I will provide for you and I will make all things right. And that is the, the great hope. That is the great promise of God, that I will be your God and you will be my people and I will watch over your comings and goings and I will be your hope and I will be your life. But maybe by now, you're beginning to feel a little bit of tension inside of you. You hear this list, right? And maybe we're drawn in by the idea of God's hospitality, that he invites people in his grace to come near and we say, that sounds really good. And I would love to dwell near to God and to come under his love and his care and to know that he's working for my good and his glory. But blameless and righteous and true? Are these things even possible? And if we're honest with ourselves, even at the best of times, we're divided people. We know what is right and yet we're still pulled towards that which is not. We speak unkind words. We think unfair thoughts about people. We don't uh, think the best in others. We're influenced by a world and a culture, and maybe our relationships, which cloud our worldview, which trip us up, which pull us off the path of righteousness. We break promises, or we just outright lie to get what we want. We're people who look the other way. We withhold generosity or we cut a corner to get ahead. Pretty audacious to me that we would think we could just skip up the hill of the Lord as though we have this all figured out and that we haven't left a trail, a wake of shame, of bad decisions, or of outright rebellion behind us. So what are we to do? Well, the beauty of God's hospitality towards you is that while he does not bend or change what is right, and while he doesn't sweep what is wrong under the carpet like it doesn't matter, his love and his grace comes and meets you in every place of failure, in every place of shame, and in every place of sin. That long before we were invited to ascend the hill of the Lord, Jesus came, and he climbed a different hill. God came in the flesh. He lived among broken people. He lived a blameless and righteous and true life for real. And then in an act of sacrificial love, he climbed the hill of Calvary, and he allowed himself to be crucified. He allowed sin and darkness to do its worst, that he took upon himself all of sin and all of death and all darkness and he died our death, and in breaking its chains, he was raised to life, to eternal, death-defeating life forever, which he now holds out to each and every one of us through his grace and his love. 
And so the invitation to live and to dwell with God is an invitation to own up to our shortcomings, to not hide them, to not pretend like they don't exist, but to acknowledge that we have sinned, to acknowledge that we have fallen short, and then to give it to God in repentance, that we would allow what Christ has done for us to set us free, to forgive us, and to bring us back to the Father. See, we don't dwell with God because of what we have done. We're invited to dwell with God because of what Jesus has done for us. And when we receive that invitation, we have to understand that it comes with a call, that we would turn from our old way of life, and through his Holy Spirit, we would turn towards him, and we would live as he calls us to live that we would allow the Spirit to form us to be like Jesus, to renew our minds and our actions and our character, that we would, as the Bible says, become new creations, fully alive as God intended we would be. And knowing that in the journey towards Him, the journey towards becoming more like Jesus, there will be good days and there will be bad days, but that His grace is sufficient and that His power is still at work, and so we persevere and we press on towards becoming the people he's called us to be. And so first things first this morning, God is inviting you to come near to him in Jesus, to lay down and repent of all the things that burden you, to confess them before him, and then to know the power of his forgiveness and the depth of his love for you. You don't need to impress God. You don't need to earn his favor. He already loves you completely. And now he is simply inviting you to take uh, him at his word and to bring all that you have before him, your burdens and your cares, and to enter into the life and relationship with him that he has. A broken and contrite spirit he will not despise. Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. And so you are able to bring your whole self to him and allow him to release you of your sin and your shame and your brokenness. But after that, no, and this is for all of us who have already chosen to follow Jesus, that when we choose to follow him, it means that we would follow in his way. His intention is to keep calling us forward in what it means to be human, to live as he created us to live. And so he's always coaxing us through the power of the Holy Spirit to live according to his ways instead of the systems of our world, that his way leads to life, because that's who Jesus is, the way the truth, and the life. And that is always going to have ongoing implications for every part of how we live. Our interior life and what we think or what we believe about ourselves or about the world or about God. It will have an impact on our external lives, how we speak and how we act and how we join in the redemptive work that God is doing. And so today, may we allow nothing to prevent us from drawing near to the God who's inviting us to him through his son Jesus. And may we be open to the power of the Holy Spirit continuing to form us in the likeness of Christ that we might live lives that in his eyes are blameless and righteous and true. Would you pray with me? Father, may we hear your invitation again this morning to come and to be with you, to dwell near you and to know your love and your care in your protection. We thank you, even as we've already celebrated communion today, for the gift of Jesus, that Christ came and he climbed a hill for us so that we could come and live 
among you and to be forgiven and set free. And so continue to reveal your grace to us and your mercy to us and your love to us. Continue, Spirit, to form us to be like Jesus in all that we think and all that we say and all that we do, and that we might uh, be participants in the great work of the kingdom that's happening around us. We thank you that um, even though we're still on the journey, even though we still uh, sometimes two steps forward and one step back, that you are good to us, that you are gracious to us, and that you continue to call us forward. So uh, strengthen us for what we need, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. If you have any questions or thoughts on this teaching, feel free to reach out because we love to connect. For more information about our church and all the things happening in the LRC community, you can visit our website at lrc.church. See you next time.